This is Chapter Eleven of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter Eleven. I Paint a Turner. The summer days passed pleasantly in Heidelberg. We had a skilled trainer, and under his instructions we were getting our legs in the right condition for the contemplated pedestrian tours. We were well satisfied with the progress which we had made in the German language. Note 1. See Appendix D for information concerning this fearful tongue. End of Note 1. And more than satisfied with what we had accomplished in art. We had had the best instructors in drawing and painting in Germany. Hemmerling, Vogel, Müller, Dietz, and Schumann. Hemmerling taught us landscape painting. Vogel taught us figure-drawing. Müller taught us to do still-life, and Dietz and Schumann gave us a finishing course in two specialties, battle-pieces and shipwrecks. Whatever I am in art, I owe to these men. I have something of the manner of each and all of them, but they all said that I had also a manner of my own, and that it was conspicuous. They said there was a marked individuality about my style, insomuch that if I ever painted the commonest type of a dog— I should be sure to throw a something into the aspect of that dog which would keep him from being mistaken for the creation of any other artist. Secretly I wanted to believe all these kind sayings, but I could not. I was afraid that my master's partiality for me and pride in me biased their judgment. So I resolved to make a test. Privately, and unknown to anyone, I painted my great picture, Heidelberg Castle Illuminated my first really important work in oils, and had it hung up in the midst of a wilderness of oil pictures in the art exhibition, with no name attached to it. To my great gratification it was instantly recognized as mine. All the town flocked to see it, and people even came from neighboring localities to visit it. It made more stir than any other work in the exhibition. But the most gratifying thing of all was that chance strangers passing through, who had not heard of my picture, were not only drawn to it, as by a lodestone, the moment they entered the gallery, but always took it for a turner. Apparently nobody had ever done that. There were ruined castles on the overhanging cliffs and crags all the way. These were said to have their legends, like those on the Rhine, and what was better still, they had never been in print. There was nothing in the books about that lovely region. It had been neglected by the tourist. It was virgin soil for the literary pioneer. Meantime, the knapsacks, the rough walking suits, and the stout walking shoes which we had ordered were finished and brought to us. A Mr. X and a young Mr. Z had agreed to go with us. We went around one evening and bade good-bye to our friends, and afterward had a little farewell banquet at the hotel. We got to bed early, for we wanted to make an early start, so as to take advantage of the cool of the morning. We were out of bed at break of day, feeling fresh and vigorous, and took a hearty breakfast, then plunged down through the leafy arcades of the castle grounds toward the town. What a glorious summer morning it was, and how the flowers did pour out their fragrance, and how the birds did sing! It was just the time for a tramp through the woods and mountains." We were all dressed alike, broad slouch hats to keep the sun off, gray knapsacks, blue army shirts, blue overalls, leathern gaiters buttoned tight from the knee down to ankle, high-quarter coarse shoes snugly laced, 
Each man had an opera glass, a canteen, and a guide-book case slung over his shoulder, and carried an alpenstock in one hand and a sun-umbrella in the other. Around our hats were wound many folds of soft white muslin, with the ends hanging and flapping down our backs, an idea brought from the Orient and used by tourists all over Europe. Harris carried the little watch-like machine called a pedometer, whose office is to keep count of a man's steps and tell how far he has walked. Everybody stopped to admire our costumes and give us hearty, pleasant march to you. When we got downtown I found that we could go by rail to within five miles of Heilbronn. The train was just starting, so we jumped aboard and went tearing away in splendid spirits. It was agreed all around that we had done wisely, because it would be just as enjoyable to walk down the Neckar as up it, and it could not be needful to walk both ways. There were some nice German people in our compartment. I got to talking some pretty private matters presently, and Harris became nervous, so he nudged me and said, "'Speak in German. These Germans may understand English.' I did so, and it was well I did, for it turned out that there was not a German in that party who did not understand English perfectly. It is curious how widespread our language is in Germany. After a while some of those folks got out, and a German gentleman and his two young daughters got in. I spoke in German of one of the latter several times, but without result. Finally she said, Ich verstehe nur Deutsche und Englische, or words to that effect, that is, I don't understand any language but German and English. And sure enough, not only she but her father and sister spoke English. So after that we had all the talk we wanted, and we wanted a good deal, for they were agreeable people. They were greatly interested in our customs, especially the Alpenstocks, for they had not seen any before. They said that the Neckar road was perfectly level, so we must be going to Switzerland or some other rugged country and asked us if we did not find the walking pretty fatiguing in such warm weather. But we said no. We reached Wimpfen, I think it was Wimpfen, in about three hours, and got out, not the least tired, found a good hotel and ordered beer and dinner, then took a stroll through the venerable old village. It was very picturesque, and tumble-down, and dirty, and interesting. It had queer houses five hundred years old in it, and a military tower, a hundred and fifteen feet high, which had stood there more than ten centuries. I made a little sketch of it. I kept a copy, but gave the original to the burgomaster. I think the original was better than the copy, because it had more windows in it, and the grass stood up better and had a brisker look. There was none around the tower, though. I composed the grass myself, from studies I made in a field by Heidelberg in Hamerling's time. The man on top, looking at the view, is apparently too large, but I found he could not be made smaller conveniently. I wanted him there, and I wanted him visible, so I thought out a way to manage it. I composed the picture from two points of view. The spectator is to observe the man from about where that flag is, and he must observe the tower itself from the ground. This harmonizes the seeming discrepancy. Figure 2 Near an old cathedral, under a shed, were three crosses of stone, moldy and damaged things, bearing life-size stone figures. The two thieves were dressed in the fanciful court costumes of the middle of the sixteenth century, while the Saviour was nude, with the exception of a cloth round his loins. We had dinner under the green trees, in a garden belonging to the hotel, and overlooking the Neckar. Then, after a smoke, we went to bed. 
we had a refreshing nap, then got up about three in the afternoon and put on our panoply. As we tramped gaily out at the gate of the town, we overtook a peasant cart, partly laden with odds and ends of cabbages and similar vegetable rubbish, and drawn by a small cow and a smaller donkey yoked together. It was a pretty slow concern, but it got us into Heilbronn before dark, five miles, or possibly it was seven. We stopped at the very same inn which the famous old robber knight and rough fighter Goetz von Berlichingen abode in after he got out of captivity in the square tower of Heilbronn between three hundred and fifty and four hundred years ago. Harris and I occupied the same room which he had occupied, and the same paper had not quite peeled off the walls yet. The furniture was quaint old carved stuff, full four hundred years old, and some of the smells were over a thousand. There was a hook in the wall, which the landlord said the terrific old Goetz used to hang his iron hand on when he took it off to go to bed. This room was very large, it might be called immense. It was on the first floor, which means it was in the second story, for in Europe the houses are so high that they do not count the first story, else they would get tired climbing before they got to the top. The wallpaper was a fiery red, with huge gold figures in it, well smirched by time, and it covered all the doors. These doors fitted so snugly and continued the figures of the paper so unbrokenly that when they were closed one had to go feeling and searching along the wall to find them. There was a stove in the corner, one of those tall, square, stately white porcelain things that looks like a monument and keeps you thinking of death when you ought to be enjoying your travels. The windows looked out on a little alley, and over that into a stable and some poultry and pig-yards in the rear of some tenement houses. There were the customary two beds in the room, one in one end, the other in the other, about an old-fashioned brass-mounted single-barreled pistol-shot apart. Uh, they were fully as narrow as the usual German bed, too, and had the German bed's ineradicable habit of spilling the blankets on the floor every time you forgot yourself and went to sleep. A round table as large as King Arthur's stood in the center of the room. While the waiters were getting ready to serve our dinner on it, we all went out to see the renowned clock on the front of the municipal buildings. End of chapter 11